As I said, we have one video on our Snobbot Instagram page that I think has over 19 million views. And you know, 19 million views means that people are interested. What's going on here? What are you doing? Why is this important? You know, and that's what we need. And again, I'm going to say it again and again and again. People tend to think black and white with reference to the environment. Just do something. Just recycle one bottle. Just buy one greener product. You know, just every now and then, do something, and it will change the world. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. Yes, it is still an amazing world, and we're here to introduce you to some of the people making it that way. And here's the thing. The thought leaders we're talking to at the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast are solving some of the most vexing problems in the world, and yet they still think the future is bright. They still think there are a host of possibilities out there waiting for us. So we need to know what they know. We need to know how they perceive setbacks and find opportunities. Hello, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of The Goodness Exchange at the global website that's the mothership of this podcast. And the purpose of that endeavor and the podcast is to put a spring in your step again so that you can live with less fear and more joy and be a multiplier for that way of thinking. We can celebrate what's right with the world. And today we're going to do that right away, talking to Dr. Ian Kerr. Ian, welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. Hi, Linda. Thank you. A real pleasure to be here. Again, I appreciate the invitation to sort of talk about some of our work and challenges, opportunities. Oh, I tell you, I have to tell people right off that I was introduced to Ian's work because at the Goodness Exchange, we've written an article about the snot bot. <laughs> And we're going to hear a lot about this amazing innovation and how it just blows the doors open on what's possible for us all, sort of indirectly and directly about how ocean conservation is going to be affected by this new innovation and so much more. But first, let me give you a little bio about Ian Kerr, because we are so lucky to have him here. Try not to blush, Ian. It took yeah, really. 25 minutes. Might be, the other, might be the other Ian Kerr. You've got the wrong one. Well, it took me a long time to write this bio because there was Uh-oh. so much there, and I tried to boil it down to to help people understand why we should care about whale conservation and ocean conservation in general. Because you know we're bombarded constantly by all the yeah. problems and the doom and gloom. But yeah. Ian's going. But trust me, stay with us for this episode. Ian's going to fill us full we're of. Gonna, we're going to turn it around. We're going to turn it yes. around. <laughs> Okay, so here's a bit of Ian's bio, and it is so so heavy that I'm going to literally just read it. He is the CEO of an organization called the Ocean Alliance, which has been recognized around the world as a leader in conservation and research for over a half century. I mean, you've been at this. <laughs> yeah, for I've worked time. for this company for 34 years, started oh. as a volunteer. Yeah, And I hope to get to that part of your story, Ian. Because I think it is so, it is such a window into how we can all follow our curiosity. That's right. And discover what we are uniquely built to contribute. 100%. Right on. Okay. Just some accolades here that you should know. Ian's work has been featured on, in the National Geographic production called Earth Live. And oh, One Strange Rock, that is an amazing production that I could watch over and over again. And then he's been 
featured in BBC Productions and Blue Planet Live. He speaks to audiences around the world. And one of my favorite audiences, come on, Ian, it must have been something. You were you spoke to the de- 170 delegates at the United Nations in the Great Hall. In the Great Hall. Talk about terrifying. You know, the, all the little lights, all the different countries, this massive hall. But what was even more terrifying was I was introduced by her deepness, by Sylvia Earle. I was like, Sylvia, shouldn't we be switching this around? Shouldn't I be introducing you? But no, she was and she was very kind and very, very complimentary. But yeah, that and I was grateful for the opportunity, but I was also grateful for the delegates to be there and listen and be interested. Yeah. Well, fill people in on who Sylvia Earle is. Well, I mean, I don't even know where to stop. I mean, look up her deepness, but Sylvia Earle, and she has to be in her late 80s by right now, but she has been an oceanographer, renowned. I think she was the senior scientist for NOAA. I mean, she's been on every board, every panel, every documentary. I mean, if any, Sylvia is the scientific Jack Cousteau has last. We all owe Sylvia an enormous debt. And, you know, really, that's a part of what I want to talk about today, too, is this is over the scope of time. Progress is easier to see. Yeah, we have to. So we'll get to that, too. I just want to finish wrap wrap up with a bio here. You know, Ian's been a conservation warrior for so long. He's run more than 100 expeditions around the globe and co-authored or authored over 160 scientific papers. And now, as I mentioned at the top, he is pioneering an amazing technology to use drones in whale research. But I imagine he's going to fill us in on all the other possibilities where this could be applied. And if you have a feeling that all hope is lost, no, we are going to cover so many topics. We're, after this interview, I hope you that he and his team are right there. They're on the case that the case of ocean conservation is in good and terribly committed, really committed people. And that Ian's work reminds us that progress is happening. And along the way, he's going to show us how, if we follow our curiosity, we might actually find our role in what we can change. We can change the world. Absolutely, Linda. Yeah. Okay. So start us. Here's where I thought we'd begin. And we can go in different directions from here. You put it that the Ocean Alliance is all about saving whales, saving the oceans and saving ourselves. That's right. Healthy whales, healthy oceans, healthy humans. Okay, so I don't think the average one of us really would understand why healthy whales has any connection to whether we survive and thrive. So fill us in on the very basics of the science that's happening there. Yeah, yeah. And certainly during the course of the conversation, you're going to have to give me some simple questions because, of course, that is like one of the biggest questions out there. In in the broadest paintbrush that we can, 71% of this planet is covered by water. One of the takeaways today should be we live on planet ocean. We don't live on planet Earth, okay? And what drives everything on this planet is the energy that's coming in from the sun. So if 71% of the planet is water, one of the primary drivers there are phytoplankton. So actually two out of every breath you take come from ocean CO2, not rainforest. A lot of people don't realize a lot of rainforest are actually closed systems. They take in the CO2, they produce the oxygen, and it goes around again. But actually, two out of every three breaths you take come from the ocean. It's coming from this phytoplankton. And you know what? Oceans are unique in that if a little animal dies outside your window on the lawn, all the nitrates are spread about, okay? You've got, you know, the worms, the ants, the bugs, the mice, whatever. 
Well, something dies on the ocean, it sinks down to the bottom, okay? So in many ways, and that's why islands like Galapagos, where you get these upwellings, they bring these nutrients to the surface. It's so productive. But in its simplest level, whales are the earthworms of the sea, okay? And when they defecate, they are fertilizing this phytoplankton. And there's a paper that came out in the journal Nature recently, I think, well, 2021, basically saying they believe ocean productivity has declined over the last 30 years because we removed the whales and we removed all of that fertilizer. Imagine if we removed millions of tons of fertilizer that we use every day on the land, crops would crash. So we removed the whales, we removed the proverbial earthworms of the sea. It's a bit more complicated than that because you've got the nitrogen conveyor belt and so on, but I think for now that that's the summary. Okay, so the oxygen that we breathe comes from these phytoplankton. Right. Goes up two to the out atmosphere. Of every, two, out of, two out of every three breasts comes from phytoplankton from our oceans. That we're fed by the whale poo. Yeah, well, they get the energy from the sun. But as you know, you need that whole formula. So, you know, you need photosynthesis. And to do photosynthesis, you need nitrates. You need iron. You need these, these fertilizing components. And they were, I mean, we don't have to go too deep into the shit, as it were. But, you know, an average whale eats about 5% of its body weight a day. So if you've got a 100-ton blue whale, it's eating 5% of its body weight a day when it's feeding, which probably means you've got a couple of tons of poop coming out there a day. So imagine if you remove millions of whales, that is, tens of millions of tons of fertilizer that is removed from the ocean ecosystem that is affecting everything, fish, cod, shrimp, krill, whatever. They call them a food chain for a reason. And when I talk to kids, I say, hey, you know what an anchor chain is? You take a link out of that anchor chain, it doesn't work anymore. And the sort of interconnectedness of nature, we tend to gloss over a little bit on occasion. And, you know, we did remove so much. I'm amazed that we're doing as well as we are because what were the biggest years, the whaling years? How many how many millions of tons of whales did yeah. we remove from the system? Yeah, well, I mean, I, so these are, these are moving targets. But I think, you know, right. some people are saying a lot of these populations are down to 10, 15% of what they were. And we need to be careful now because a lot of people are saying, okay, this whale is off the endangered species list. Like humpback whales have done quite well. So here's sort of your endangered line. Here's where they were. They're now here. Well, that's great, but they were here. You know what I mean? So it's great that we've got them off, but we still have a lot more work to do. And the little bit of a bad, bad news that, you know, will, is the foundation of everything that I do and my team here do is that when I started 35 years ago, it was really just about commercial whaling. Alas, now whales face more threats than they ever face because you've got pollution, you've got ship strikes, you've got what we call acoustic bleaching, you've got entanglement in nets and lines and so on. And it's okay because, you know, a lot of these are human created things. So if we can create the problem, we can create the solution. And in many ways, a foundation to people listening, hey, Every crisis is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to go out there and change the world. So you got a choice of saying, I'm overwhelmed and I'm disenfranchised, or, hey, come on, let's go do this. That is so good coming from someone who's said, who's seen what you've seen. Thank you. you. Thank you for remaining stalwart. And uh, that's lovely. Okay, because you've got me fired up now. Okay. Okay. (laughs) This is Seth. 
Help us understand why you just told us how whales are part of this. Uh, the way I saw it on your website, they, they, we call it, or we called it in our article, the whale pump. I did. That's, that's <laughs> right. No, you got it. That's right. The whale pump. Exactly. Because it's, they're diving and they're eating and they're bringing food up and they're defecating and they're moving around. And even they'll go from one area and believe it or not, and then still be defecating in another area because they're still burning up energy and, and so on. Yeah. So but the whale okay. pump's a good analogy. The whale so poop perfect. Pump. Yes. <laughs> you got to stand for something on this planet. That's right. That's right. Okay. Let's, <laughs> so, let's, get it, let's get it down to its elements. Right. Let's talk about, so why whales are kind of a longstanding bellwether of ocean health, because even if somebody isn't just enraptured by whales, which I happen to be in my team right, at right. the Goodness Exchanges. Tell us, we all got to be concerned about ocean health. So how do whales, and then we're going to get to the drone. So how yeah, do sure. whales... We're good. We're good. How do whales, how are they the bellwether of ocean health? Well, I mean, I think, again, many levels. At its simplest level, they're mammals like us. Do you know what I mean? So they're mammals, they're complex mammals at the top of the food chain. And as you probably heard when they talk about sort of a nuclear holocaust, they say all that will be left will be the cockroaches. The most complex animals go first. So we're at the top of the ocean. And you know what? You and I are the same. I love whales because in many ways they're like scientific enigmas. You know, you've got over 85 different species of whales from a blind pink dolphin in the Amazon to a blue whale with a tongue that weighs five tons and the heart the size of a VW. So I love that aspect of whales. You got to remember, Whales do have the capacity to sort of capture hearts and minds. You know, Greek coins had dolphins on them. And by the way, remember, dolphins are just small toothed whales. And then it's just the reality is, the unfortunate reality is, our oceans are downhill from everything and gravity never sleeps. So our oceans are in many ways our toilet, whether it's intentional or not. You know what I mean? So that's the sad thing. The detritus of our consumer lifestyle inexorably works its way down into our oceans. And just like anybody else, what's that expression? We are what we eat type of thing. If we're eating garbage, you know, it's just not good for you. So I think a lot of people will say, well, a nudie branch is a biological keystone species. But the reality is we're the mammal at the top of the food chain on land. They're the mammal at the top of the food chain on the water. And there are sort of three ways to love whales. You know, you can love whales like like you and I do because they're fascinating. You can love whales because of what they do within ocean ecosystems and how they support everything else. Or you can love whales because what is the legacy you want to leave to your kids or your grandkids, you know? And when they look back at a hundred years time, they'll say, they knew. They knew what was going on. They had the resources, they had the luxury, but they made fast cars more important than slow lives or something. Okay. And we can tell what's happening to the ocean. We can tell a lot by, so just like humans, like we reflect a lot about what's happening in our environment. If you study our cancer rates or our exactly. longevity rates that are yeah. falling and all that, just like we and diabetes we and all these. Yeah, things. Yeah. All of it. Yep. So whales, you can study, you can find out a lot about what's happening to the ocean by studying whale tissue there, what's happening. Well, anyway, now yeah, it's time no, to talk about the snot bot. No, but 100%, <laughs> 100%. Yeah, let me sort of dial back a little bit and, and tell you okay. two other sort of quick stories. So the first one, well, there's three really. 
The first one is ocean research tends to be a prerogative of the privilege. And I say that because it's just expensive to get out there and do the work. And I said to you before, you know, I've worked in 20 countries and I've made friends all over the world. And you've met people. And I think I said the interest is there worldwide in all of these countries. There's people that want to do the work, but they don't have the opportunity, mainly because of the cost. So the first question is, how can we get more people out there sort of collecting this data? And that means it's got to be simple affordable, sort of replicable. You know what I mean? The second thing is what I call the endangered species paradox, okay? And it tends to be camp number one and camp number two. And camp number one is we need to collect all of the information we can so we can mitigate sort of human effects. We need to know why it's happening, how it's happening, so we can solve the problem. But there are another group, quite rightly, and I'm dealing with this now. I don't, don't have to go too deep right now, but where they basically say, don't do anything. They're so close to extinction. Don't do anything that could like push them over the edge. And to be blunt, you know, a lot of data collection is sort of invasive. When we go to the doctor, we don't like it, but at least we know what's going on. You know what I mean? When I come up to an animal and try to biopsy it to get a skin tissue, it doesn't know what's going on. It doesn't go, oh, there's a whale biologist. Let me poop for him or her. So the problem we've got is it's expensive. It's difficult to do. You're on the ocean. And you don't want the act of collecting the data to change the data. So then. So we, but before we start talking about drones, you got to share with people how it used to be done because you are the father of this. The videos of this look kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's cool. It's what you could do, right? You were doing what you could do, but tell people how we used to collect data on whales. Well, I mean, I, I, I can bring the story together actually nicely there. Thank you. In short, I was in the Gulf of Mexico after the Deepwater Horizon disaster, and there's a big population of sperm whales that live there, like right near where the disaster happened. And again, God bless everybody, but there's an awful lot of focus on shoreline and terrestrial and whatever. And what about the animals that live right there? And to be blunt, we were playing, and I'm not trying to belittle it here, but I felt like we were playing the world's most expensive version of whack-a-mole, or if you want to call it whack-a-whale. I have my little crossbow, and we shoot a biopsy arrow at a whale, and we get a little piece, like, a, like the size of a pencil eraser. It was a tiny little piece. And by the way, when you watch whales playing and mating, they're beating the living shit out of themselves. So really isn't a, it's this collecting biopsies has been shown not to be, not to affect sort of mating, feeding, all this type of stuff. But the reality is racing down, trying to get this sample, and then it dove, and then racing over there, and then it dove. And almost like when I started, we were paying five, $6,000 a day to be out there on a boat, and I wasn't getting the samples. And guess what? That means they're going to shut this program down, and then we don't know what was going on. And I guess I'm lucky, and I would say to anybody else, maybe you're lucky. I'm sort of a generalist, a master of nothing, but my hobby was actually building and, dare I say, crashing more than flying radio-controlled airplanes and helicopters and drones. And I'm on the boat, and I'm trying, you know, it's the end of the day, and the whale dove, and I didn't get the sample because it just out of I was almost there, and then the whale dove, and I'm, I'm pretty upset, and it's the end of the day. And guess what? To add insult to injury, I get covered in this cloud of, like, whale snot that's, like, sticky and smelly and whatever. 
And while I was fuming, the, as I say, the whole situation, you could almost say I smelt an idea, but I'm like, wait a minute, smelly means productive. Do you know what I mean? It means there's something going on and sticky. And I'm like, wait a minute. And then I thought about it. You know, if you think about a human breathalyzer, they're just looking at your blood alcohol. And I'm like, could we, you know, could whales not have all this biological info? And guess what? Whales are exhaling at 60 to 80 miles an hour, which is like when we sneeze. And, you know, Linda, admit it, when we sneeze, there tends to be stuff in our handkerchiefs because we're throwing it out. So every exhalation is like this. So it seemed highly likely that epithelial cells and all sorts of the biological sort of sort of microcosm living in their lungs is then being thrown up into the air. And then, of course, I'm like, well, can I get over there quickly? And this is in 2011, 2012, when drones were just beginning to be made. And I thought originally I'd try to fly an airplane in there. And now, of course, we just bring in this drone, you know what I mean? And the whale exhales onto one of our Petri dishes. It just actually, I mean, I've got a drone right here. We just fly the drone in, and the whale exhales from the Petri dish. And FYI, not really that important to all of you folks, but you tend to think that a whale blow goes straight up. But actually, the whale's swimming forward, so the blow is like an arc. So we just fly into this arc, so the dishes aren't pointing down. The dishes are pointing forward, and we get all these dishes. And we'll typically have six dishes or three pairs six dishes that we will put on the drone. And then suddenly you've got, these two can be for microbiomes. These two can be for hormones. These two can be for DNA. And then when you're up in the air, of course, you can see behavior. You can do photogrammetry. You can measure the animals, you know. And if I was to go back, like sort of be, let's imagine I'm like a, a biology sort of creator at the beginning of time. I would say, okay, let's talk about the worst and best way to study whales. The worst way would to be in a boat because you, all you're seeing is this sort of log floating on the water. Do you know what I mean? And so what the hell's going on? Getting up in the air is the best way. And now with these drones, you know, a couple of thousand dollars. And actually, FYI, we've collected over, we've worked with nine species of whales in, in, in nine or 10 countries. And everywhere we go, we actually have a program where and donors were available here where they will buy us a drone. And then when I go to the Azores, we'll work with the locals and then we'll train them and give them a drone. And then we'll go down to Mexico and we'll work with the locals and we'll give them a drone. Now, between you and I, don't tell anyone else here, Linda, but I then get to buy a new drone. Well, that's, it's, it's a win, win, win. It's the whales. A, I got goosebumps. Yeah. When you yeah, were just yeah. telling that story, I got goosebumps. It is a win, win, win. I can tell you, I mean, even, so I was in Gabon, West Africa and, we left them with a team, with a drone. and It turned out they ended up by crashing it. But I think they actually found some illegal gold mining because they were going up this little estuary and there's all this mud coming in. And like, where's the mud coming from? Next to the rainforest, hacking their way into the rainforest. Who knows if they would find them? And they're like, wait a minute, we can just fly this drone in. There it is. And then they were able to go in and raid the illegal gold mine and so on. And that's what I would say. I'm hoping that one of your listeners, one of the viewers today, will come up with the next drone innovation. You can call me or go do it yourself. But, you know, it's really is thinking outside of the box. That's what I'm excited about. And that's why I like working with kids too, because kids, they don't have the box yet. You know what I mean? No. And 
And this is why we have to share podcast episodes like this. I have no agenda on the good at the Goodness Exchange. We don't have any advertising. We're just trying to get stories like Ian is sharing with us to rise to the top of the internet instead of the doom and gloom. Because we have yeah, a yeah. choice of what exactly. to give our attention to, right? And honestly, I don't think technology is going to save the world. It's humans that are going to save the world. But having all of these new tools, whether it be the podcast, the communication, the drone, the cameras, the 360, the sensors, you know what I mean? The, the good news and bad news is at the end of the day, humans are destroying this planet. So we just have to make a choice. And by the way, often when I give a talk, I end it by saying there's one thing that we as humans have control over. And I think when I said that to my like six-year-old daughter at one point, she thought I was talking about the TV remote. But it's not a TV remote. It's our own mind. At the end of the day, we make the decision to recycle it or not recycle it, to buy green or not to buy green, to buy blue. And, and I also want to say, and I know this is probably the end of the talk, but I think a lot of people are so overwhelmed. And it really, you don't have to be overwhelmed. Just do something once a month and then once every two weeks because it, it really is the ocean's dying a death of a, a million cuts, you know? And mm -hmm. some people like, you know how it is, I'm going to go vegan now, or I'm going to just small steps and you'll get them done. You know what I mean? And you'll yeah. feel good about it. Do what you can do. That's yeah. what any of us have to do is just do what we can do, whether it's sharing something on the internet that is positive and points to progress or giving 10 bucks because to somebody who's actually doing the work out there yeah. to make yeah, the world yeah, a better yeah. place for us all. Exactly. I mean, we Adopt talk to people whale. who are Yes, adopt a whale. Like we're going to get to this, but I'm sure people can contribute to the Ocean Alliance, right? Yeah, yeah. No, we're a 501c3, and our website is a real tough one. You know, our website is whale.org. So that shows you how long <laughs> whale singular, whale.org. So I've been doing this a long time. But okay. yeah, but I also think to your point, though, almost talking to kids and I like to, somebody came in this morning and they were like, they didn't know what to do when they graduated. And I said yesterday, I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. But the reality is, um, you know, I'm sort of the community college master of nothing. And that has been my superpower. Do you, do you know what I mean? So I, I think we got to be very careful because we live in a society that labels. Remember, we call this planet Earth. So we know how bad we are labeling. It's planet ocean. So I think the people watching, you know, if you're an artist, you could bring art to save the world or music or jigsaw puzzles, bringing disparate groups together and, and so on and so on. And I think if you don't fit in, I think that's an asset, not a liability, you know? Mm, absolutely. You know, I have been a dentist for 35 years and I talk to kids all day long. We have big practice with lots and lots of kids. And that's one of the things I always tell them what I've noticed about success is that it's not just about having one thing that you care about as deeply, unless you're a scientist. In, sci in the science world, you just have to dive deeply and right. so forth. But I've noticed that the people who are coming up with new ideas and being successful at being changemakers, they usually have two or three expertises or two yeah. or three things that they really care about. Yeah. And sometimes the alchemy of those three things is something new that just breaks open the whole exactly. world. Exactly. No, and it's been very exciting for me because, again, you know, I'm 65 and we're, we're going gangbuster, gangbusters here. It's, it's really exciting. And some of the new tech, and we, we can talk more about that too. 
Okay, in the show notes, and the show notes are going to contain everything we talk about, and and our producer is writing these things down diligently, so we'll have them there on the Goodness Exchange in the article. But I wanted to just be real clear about some of the wonder that you've already talked about. If you've, we'll get a, a video of Ian. Ian can share a video with us about how it yeah. used to be yeah. collecting whale data, because what he's talking about is essentially racing around in a boat. Some boats I've seen videos of what your work was were like sailboats that had a long, like weird gangplank that stuck out. That's right. Way well, out. that was another little invention of mine so that I didn't have to get too close to the boat. I put a long gangplank so that the biopsy could be closer to the animal and the boat could be further away. That was one of my first. And then he would have to inventors. shoot this, this little tiny. What, with a string on it? A little? No, actually, they it had like what was called syntactic foam float, and the float was like the cushion, and it would just bounce and then float, and then you'd scoop it up. And but... oh, The whack-a-mole potential there sounds crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You could only well, get I mean, so close. Yeah, but it was, it was just frustrating because you really were sort of chasing these animals down, and there's still good data that could be collected. We haven't worked out some of the toxicology, some of these persistent organic pollutants that are stored in the blubber. We haven't got that worked out with drones yet, but give us time. So there's still people there that are biopsying animals, and it's still important. But yeah. for what we wanted to do, and again, as I said to you, we're very lucky living in, in North America, but there are places around the world where they know very little about their populations. And actually, right now, we're trying to fund almost what we call little mini expeditions. Mm. There'll be like 25 grand an expedition where just two of my team will fly to Timor-Leste or Oman or Patagonia. And what two people will go down there, spend a week there, train them, give them the gear, get them up and running. Almost the idea, plant a tree, give them a little water and let them do the work rather than, because as you know, with anything, even driving a car, it's much better to have somebody come in and give you some lessons rather than you just go for it. Now, we're going to take a short break here and I'm going to turn people on to something new that's just recently come out. And then when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about how we can have more hope in the future when we look at things through the scope of time, because there's a wonderful like arc of time that you're involved in that I want to share with people. So we'll take a break. And when we're back, we'll help people understand how to follow their own curiosity into what they are uniquely built to contribute. Fantastic. Hi, Dr. Linda here. Many of you know that the Mothership website of this podcast is called The Goodness Exchange. And there you can find articles, a video library, podcasts, and content collections that point to what's right with the world. You can visit every day and you'll find the antidote to all the negative noise out there in the world. Okay, that solves the problem in our personal lives. We can choose what to give our attention to every morning and end our day with something positive. But what about our work environments? We need to feel supported and come alive in those cultures. But that's becoming harder and harder when most of us go to virtual work. And many of us who are working with others still never have shared positive experiences with our colleagues. By definition, culture comes from shared experience. So employees find it harder and harder every day to create an environment that attracts and retains other great people. Well, enter the Goodness Exchange and our extraordinary content which celebrates an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. My team and I at the Goodness Exchange are making certain that employees of optimistic, values-driven companies have instant access 
to the positive news out there today. Because science is telling us that it's time to start celebrating what's right with the world. And here's the thing. There are so many positive stories out there about astounding solutions to some of our world's biggest problems, about wonders and leaps in human potential. But most are going completely uncelebrated. Your culture can change that and can be changed by a new focus on goodness and progress. In fact, with all that negative noise out there, your work culture can be infused by a sense of flourishing. People can be sharing ideas and swapping stories of wonderful, ingenious solutions around the water cooler again. With instant access to good news, employees can stay on their feet and take turns being the one who makes opportunity at setback. People who use the Goodness Exchange every day have a spring in their step. They radiate joy and confidence and creativity because they know a far more complete picture of what's going on in the world. If you'd like to chat about infusing the culture where you work with the tone of celebration of goodness and innovation and progress, let's hop on a Zoom. You can introduce us to your HR director or your chief of culture. You know, if used consistently, our content can give companies a way to turn something aspirational like positivity into a concrete way of being. Thanks. Talk to us at the Goodness Exchange about change and flourishing where you work. Okay, we're back. Thank you so much, Ian Kerr, for sharing with us reasons to hope for our ocean and all this fascinating stuff about whales. And you're giving me such encouragement about all of us finding what we're uniquely built to contribute, what we can, doing what we can do. It sounds yeah. like you followed this journey of your curiosity. And I want to talk about that because it's something that we can all take away from this interview. So one of the things that I came upon when I was looking at your bio is it reminded me of the arc of time. Okay, so first, there, well, there, not first, but there was this guy, wonderful Dr. Roger Payne, who was in the 1970s, the guy that discovered that whales were singing to each other. Humpback That's whales right. had this That's hauntingly right. beautiful song. And to be clear, just we want to make sure people understand. So a song is a rhythmically repeating collection of its notes at its simplest level. So some animals just make random sounds, you know, that, but when it's rhythmically repeating and they would then sing songs again and again. So, but carry on. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's and please, maybe we'll put a link um, yeah, to, well, to a place. You, send me a link. We'll put it on our website. Yeah, we've got a website where you can listen to okay. whale songs at whale.org. Right. Because I think there was, okay, so then what happened was in 1979, National Geographic magazine made, they had to make the largest single press run in Ever. history. I think, I think we've still beaten Taylor Swift and Madonna and everybody else because they just don't do those large, those large prints. They would do a print of a few million, see how it went, and then just keep printing. So yeah, I think it was like I think close to 12 million in a single print. Because it included it included the the sounds of the whale song. How did that go? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So the so the little floppy record was just a yeah. few minutes of whale songs. It just got put into that. And like we still have a few. We should send you one. But yeah, how crazy is that? And it was fantastic. And I give Nat Geo all sorts of credit for thinking to do that. 
Now, okay, then that captured the public's attention in such a way that things just immediately flew into action. So like 10 years between or less discovery of whale song to this big global phenomenon it became through National Geographic. And then that led to a global moratorium on commercial railing in what, 1984? That's correct. And I think the way I would put it, and it's what you are doing here today with your team, or you and I are doing it, it's getting the interest. Do you know what I mean? You know, why is this interesting? Why should I care? And a struggle for us a little bit is saving the whales is so sort of corny. Do you know what I mean? The people are like, ah, Jane Fonda saved the whales type of thing. But what is interesting is how that, how that problem has evolved from commercial whaling to all the different threats to actually humanity's awareness and humanity's capacity to be the solution is against the problem. Exactly. And it didn't take that long when you really think that there are people dragging their knuckles in 1979, I'm sure. But after the National Geographic article, didn't it feel like this changes everything? Well, it did. It did. But I'm sorry. Now, I'm going to be Mr. Negative. As as positive as that was, as his consumerism sort of accelerated. And, and, you know, I do feel with sort of many chemicals and many pollutants, I don't think these were bad people that were making these things. These were people trying to help companies, help humanity, help products. And we're now at that tipping point where we sort of understand, but, you know, do we really care or is that my problem or why should I care? And, you know, again, and I know I sort of mentioned this earlier, but from my perspective, we're all part of the problem. Let's just do something. And, you know, do you know what I mean? We don't have to be black and white. We could just like, hey, you know what? I'll help here. Or if everybody could just be a little bit more engaged rather than to a relatively small cadre of people doing the heavy lifting. Well, that's what I learned after I was like, okay, National Geographic, yay, this little record that you could listen to whale song. And then we, there was more, more term on whaling, but that's just at the time when we started using the ocean for our garbage dump. Yeah. So there's this whole thing about out of sight, out of mind, this dumping. There's a term for it. The solution to pollution is dilution. That's right. Yeah, which is not the case. That's right. And, so you know, just yeah. as soon as we fixed the whaling problem, we had this growing problem of the environmental disaster that was happening in the ocean. Yeah. It's sort of interesting because I don't know this, but we spent a lot of time from 2000 to 2010 talking about ocean pollution and actually showing how polluted many whales were because again they're mammals at the top of the food chain so that this one fish eats 10 of them that eats 10 of them and there's seven trophic levels and you've got like a million times higher and i don't know but i like to think that certain places around the world people actually stopped eating whale meat because it was so polluted so where's the irony in that it's like wait a minute we're now no longer hunting and killing whales because they're too polluted to eat. It's just some tragic irony, but anyway. And then we're back to your observation that the problem points to solutions, right? Yeah. The time I interviewed a really wonderful man who is a high-level executive in the organization Cherry, Charity Water. This is oh, an yeah. yeah. amazing organization that's probably the leading per- group providing fresh water all around the world. And he said, the great thing about what they're doing is it's a problem we know how to solve. Yeah. Right. There's so many problems in this world that we're scratching our head about. But really, the direction that things that that your research allows uh, that opens the door on is, like you said, more data. I wrote down money equals data. Right. So the more 
you, your pro- project gets funded, the more we understand about pollution. And I'm sure you're monitoring certain whale species over That's time. Right. Yeah, so yeah, you exactly. can tell as pollution yeah, I mean, changes. And- we have the one program where we've been studying southern right whales in Argentina. That is actually the longest ongoing study of any great whale. And this year was its 51st year. So we have the longest ongoing study of any great whale species. And it's actually rather interesting because in Patagonia, the right whales are doing very well. And up here off Boston, Massachusetts, they're doing very poorly. So there's a capacity to compare. But I will say, Linda, just so you understand, where I am in my life now, I'm less concerned about the data and sort of more interested in empowering, engaging, and motivating people. Because the 160 plus papers, who have many, has probably been read by like 200 people. And as I said, we have one video on our Snobbot Instagram page that I think has over 19 million views. And, you know, 19 million views means that people are interested. What's going on here? What are you doing? Why is this important? And that's what we need. And again, I'm going to say it again and again and again. People tend to think black and white with reference to the environment. Just do something. Just recycle one bottle. Just buy one greener product. Just every now and then, do something. And it will change the world. And now this is just a tiny, tiny anecdote. But the other day, my kids have made me so aware of our power to just do something that I'm just dying. I'm standing at a quick stop. And for some reason, I couldn't find a single thing that I could drink that was in glass that I could recycle. And, you know, that little voice in my head, I just walked out of there thirsty because I was not going to buy anything made of plastic. Well, uh, but I'll say this, though, to be fair and to listeners, to be a good environmentalist, you have to come to terms with your own hypocrisy. Do you know what I mean? Because I fly to conferences. I mean, actually, I have an electric car now, but I'm lucky that I could do that. But the reality is none of us can live in this perfect world. Do you know what I mean? But I love the idea of the sort of carbon offsets. It's just a life offset. If I'm going to do this, I'll try to do that, even if that fails. You know, but I, this lunchtime, I walked on the beach with my wife and we just picked up a couple of plastic bags. And uh, well, does it make any difference? If it's just me, no. But if, you know, if nine out of 10 or four out of 10 people are doing it, suddenly we've got, wouldn't we all rather lie on a clean beach than a dirty beach? Yes, this is, and this is at the essence of even your finding all these novel ways that you can spread the word on. And I, yeah. I do have to say too that I'm one of these big defenders of Gen Z and the millennials because I, there's a reason why you've got so many views on that. Yeah. They believe they matter and they believe that they have what it takes to change the future. Yeah. And they're smart. They know how to get facts. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So, okay, share with us this tagging whales. Yeah, well, I think once you've sort of, once we develop Snotbot, and by the way, I, I do want to say in the beginning, I got a little bit of criticism about the name, but the reality is anybody listening today, they're not going to forget that name. You remember Snotbot and, and the global market penetration is amazing, which is, which is just fantastic. I, we didn't really know that. It's just at the time, scientists can actually be their own worst enemy. The stereotype of the white jacket with the pen protector. I could have done that today, but we're okay. So I'm just trying to break that mold too of what is a scientist. And do you need to have a PhD to do science? I don't think you do. You know, you've just, it's all back to your skills and what can you do? But so what is interesting with the drones that I love is they're affordable. They're fairly easy to use. They're scalable. You can add different things on them. And 
when I looked at our problem, which was getting to a whale before it dived, once we started doing quite well with a stopbot, we tried looking around at what other problems there are there. And a very good friend of mine, Dr. Dave Wiley, has spent the last 20 years putting little, actually little tags. Here's a tag, an example of a tag on a whale. And this, this tag is time, depth, acoustics, acceleration, orientation. So actually seeing how they're sort of going down, feeding and lunging up and rolling over. So these are not a tracking tag. It's not where is it. It's how is it living its daily life. And I gave a talk the other day and, you know, you get people all excited about whales. And I said, do you want to know what I spend 90% of my time looking at? And it's just a shot of the ocean. You know what I mean? Because it's like whales, they live their lives underwater. They're not living. I mean, it's like, it would be like studying me in the kitchen or something like that. This is not how I live my life. So these tags, it's really exciting what they're doing. But guess what? They get to within 15 feet of a whale with a long pole, and then they try to whack the thing on the back. And it's these people are amazing. How they do it, the skill set, the capacity. But I was like, you know what? There's got to be a simpler way. And basically, they send us a bunch of these tags. And I don't know if I can even do it right here, but we basically, you know, just, um, is that in the shot? Just dropped it down. And guess what? The tag stuck sticks to, yeah. So we actually have what was called ballistic gel, which the Mythbusters made famous. It's a sort of rubbery gel. And we basically now are just dropping these tags onto a whale. But we've just put in a publication, but the average distance we were from a whale was over 400 meters away. So the research vessel was 400 meters away from the whale, and the average time it took from when we took off in a drone and got to the whale was 2 minutes and 45 seconds. And if you go on our webpage, we also have these larger tags. These are called CATS tags, and they're actually camera tags. So they have all of the data plus the cameras. And by the way, they fall off, and you can see they've got these little antennas. There's a satellite a transmitter here, VHF. We have to pick the tags up when they come off. They can stay on. I think the longest one we had on was for 30 hours. They can stay on for up to 70 hours. You can also program how long the tag will be on. But if you go on to our Instagram page at Snotbot, You'll see these videos of us dropping the tags and going into the abyss on the back of a whale. It's just so cool. And suddenly now, as with Snotbot, to put a tag on a whale with a boat and the boom, it was costly. It was difficult. It was expensive. And the, and the sort of cost-benefit analysis wasn't great because you were lucky if you got on one or two tags a day. And here, when you're flying the drone out, the biggest thing is just being where the whale is when it comes up being where the whale is and we've demonstrated with snotbot we can do that well so we i think we've we've now tagged half a dozen different species it's just amazing and now i'm hoping other people around the world are going to do this and again we've had calls from half a dozen different countries saying can you do a snotbot expedition and in all of these countries we can't or we actually say snotbot goes tagging you know mm-hmm. but we can do expeditions all these places but we're now trying to do these mini expeditions where just a couple of my team will go out, give them the gear, get them set up so they can do the work. And it's exciting because as you'll see from the videos, you know, seeing how these animals live their lives, you know, understanding better what they're doing underwater, it's exciting, it's interesting, and it's giving us the information so that we can 
mitigates human impacts. And I get yeah. to fly a drone over a whale. <laughs> Who would have thought that? that could be a job? Yeah. It reminds me of the the story of Jane Goodall. I hope most of our listeners know who Jane Goodall is. She is a very world-renowned scientist now in her 90s. And when she was a young girl, she her life went along in such a way that she got to study chimpanzees in the deepest possible way before we knew anything about any other primates. Well, I, of course, there were other wonderful people that were studying primates, but somehow her story yeah. made it to the top. And what I love about this is you are reminding us that there are many, many ways to have an impact on the way we see possibilities and the way we see our impact. You know, Jane would meet with scientist after scientist and just share with them her lived experience about the consciousness of the chimpanzees. Like yeah. no one thought our dogs or cats or any animals, they didn't, no one thought of animals in the scope of consciousness. Way, we did horrific right. scientific experiments on animals, but yeah. she came along and showed us how their lives were playing out. And then we got concerned. Exactly. And then there, there was this whole awakening about how we could no longer do research on yeah. on chimpanzees and keep them in four by four cages. And I think there's a possibility of that same sort of awakening and rising awareness in what you're telling us we can learn about whales. Well, and I think who do, I mean, it's rare to find someone who doesn't like whales or isn't aware of whales. You know what I mean, they're, they're, and because there's so many different species, you can like the pink dolphin or you can like the blue whale or the singing whale or the canary, the beluga, you know. So there's all these different whales. But I think, again, for the younger generation, I think it's the excitement of how can I bring my skills to bear? What can I do? How can I be involved? I mean, come on. Who doesn't like going to the beach and looking out over the ocean? It's actually funny because America's first environmentalist in many ways was Henry David Thoreau, who came from around this area, Walden Pond. And I laugh because one of his statements was, we do not associate the idea of antiquity with the oceans as we do the land because they're unchangeable always. And this is part of my problem or our problem as it relates to whales. When I look over that ocean, it looks great. You know what I mean? When you see a forest that is cut down or, or a river that is polluted. So part of my challenge is how do we engage people with an invisible, an invisible problem that is having a much greater effect on us than many other things? And I don't, I'm not knocking any other just for us, whatever. I mean, Choose, yeah. What do you like, fish and chips, or do you like sushi? I don't. What do choose your dish? It is so true, though. We it, it is one of those very easily easily ignored situations because it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that just, I think that sort of just encourages us to be more curious to decide what we're going to give our attention to. Right. I hope this episode. I know it will be filled with all kinds of extra things that we can encourage people to go to. And then find their way to have an active role in what you guys yeah. are doing. What's well, exciting now, too, though, there's lots of people that are sort of getting involved that have come from different backgrounds. There's this group, OceanX, that was founded by Ray Dalio. I was just going to ask you about yeah. OceanX. Tell us they about are, that. You all know they're fantastic folks. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they are, I mean, luckily, Ray is a billionaire and he's worked very hard for it. But he said, hey, the ocean, we, inner space, as Sylvia Earle would call it, is more exciting than outer space. So they have their boat called the Ocean Explorer. And no, they, they are just out there filming, educating, bringing people on the boat, giving them opportunities to learn, to understand. I mean, 
It's just amazing. And I'd like to think that maybe Oceanlights is a microcosm of that. It's the similar mindset that, you know, the inner space is still to be explored. Mm-hmm. There's so much Lovely. more we have to learn. And what an adventure that can be. All right. We'll put some links to OceanX as well. Now, how is that related to EarthX? Well, of course, I don't think they're related at all beyond the idea of the vision. Do you know what I mean? And and I'm still, I'm, I'm a light, slightly biased in that I believe it's blue blood that runs through the veins yeah. of the planet, not brown, but that's okay. <laughs> but, you okay. know, we need okay. it all. And I love the work of, there's an organization called Sea Legacy yeah. that we've written about. There's some um, great groups out there, great people. Oh, there, I mean, there yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, the challenge is, again, the challenge still remains sort of, in, it, it. you have to admit, it's sort of interesting, you know, the largest controlling force on this planet, which are our oceans, do you know what I mean, are probably yeah. in many ways least considered from an environmental perspective because, mm-hmm. you, you know, many times we can't even keep our own backyard clean, let alone the oceans. And it's a shame, but as I said at the beginning, I think it's an opportunity. Yes, What's the next big thing? Is. So thinking about things in the light of opportunity in wildlife conservation, I interviewed a wonderful man named Damian Mander, who has Jane Goodall on his board, who's figured out that single mothers make the best game wardens in Africa. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's unbelievable, his yeah. organization. And in that conversation, I realized that that now it's very easy to engage people in wildlife conservation once you show that an elephant is worth so much more alive than dead. Well, that's right. Yeah. Is there is there that ethos? Is it possible to make those kind of calls in whale conservation? Or of course it is in ocean conversation. Yeah. No, actually in whales and you know, and I don't have the sort of data sheet in front of me, although I could I could send I'll email you a picture, but it's sort of interesting because one, when we've got, as you know, we call the whale pump, as we talked about it, how, yes. you know, the nitrogen is creating all of this ocean productivity. Billions of people rely on seafood as their primary source of protein. And it's actually fascinating that I think, I'm going to get the number wrong, but I think it's something like they think one whale in its lifetime sequesters the same amount of carbon as 3,000 trees. So again, you know, nature's solution to climate change is more whales. And so you've got the nitrogen pump, you've got the carbon sequestration. And then to be blunt, you know, one of the largest global industries in the world is whale. Everybody that comes into Gloucester to go on a whale watch boat will park somewhere, will get lunch somewhere, will go to the bar, will go to the restaurant. Do you know what I mean? So it's all these. So you'd actually be surprised what large economic drivers whales are. And I think, actually, you know what? I just did a little video. I've got, wait a minute, got to remember the name of the company. It'll come to me in a minute. It's sort of the European green Netflix. And I just did a little video with them. I'll send you a link. And I okay. think they were estimating that a single whale was worth billions of dollars in its, in its lifetime alive as compared to dead. I think I've run across that statistic too. Yeah. We'll be able to find that. I mean, because I I just want to say something quickly, if you don't mind, because, you know, how I said there's the sort of the endangered species paradox. Mm -hmm. And then we've got the humanity paradox. And we've got people over here that care and want to do something. And I say, great, thank you. You know, go out there and do it. But there's the people over here that probably don't care. And I think all we're trying to say to them is, 
It's in your own self-interest to care. I don't care if you don't like whales. I don't care if you don't like oceans. But if you're concerned about how you live your life, your economy, your job, your children, your grandchildren, forget about the bloody environmentalists. It's in your own self-interest to care about the wild world. It's just that simple. Even if you feel the most selfish person on the planet, then you should be doing more for the environment because, you know, it will affect you. It is affecting you. Yes. So tell me how it does, you know about the concept of rewilding? Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, I, is that, is that happening in the ocean at all? Not as much, but I tell you what is interesting, both in Florida, and I think there was a, an article that came out recently in Hawaii, they made these sort of no fishing parks. Cause there's a very interesting thing. We don't have to get into now where sometimes they'll say, well, it's a national park, but you can still extract resources from it. Do you know what I mean? Well, so there are national parks out there which you can still fish, but I know there's one down in the Florida Keys and one in Hawaii, and the stories are out there where people fought tooth and nail not to have these happen. And I remember I just read the paper the other day. A paper came out showing the one in Hawaii where the fishermen are saying, absolutely, we're having more fish here now because there's this sanctuary. And they haven't quite worked out whether... Bigger fish are coming to Indy, you know, whether it's the oasis effect or whatever. But regardless, they are showing if we can convert, conserve these, and actually Sylvia Earle's calling them sort of these biological hope spots as against hot spots. Do you know what I mean? Where we're preserving these spaces and these spaces then almost feed the spaces around them. And if we can get another, enough of them, we can maintain the sort of ecological balance that we all need to survive. You know, and even a conversation, the, the start of a conversation, that's what all the national parks in America started with a yeah. conversation. Yeah. Anything that's good as far as conservation goes started with a conversation. So what people can do to amplify conversations that they come across that seem valuable in the that's way like, of con conservation? Sh share this story, share this conversation. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Ex so we can't wrap up here without having two really important talks talks to wrap up. One is that I always love to interview folks in, with the kind of insight and life experience that you have. And I always ask, what do you wish people knew? Like when sometimes you're just like, oh, I just wish people knew what? Right. Well, there's sort of two things maybe, but I'll just start with one. Everything we've talked about is almost about action. Do something. Do you know what I mean? And I just don't think people realize how much inaction, how devastating that is to the wild world. It's just not good enough to, you know, I mean, sort of, you know, I actually sort of like science fiction and all that type of stuff. And the, and the reality is, you know, and I can't think of a good analogy, but I know that I know I think Germany and places in Europe have done just an amazing job on recycling. They don't even think about it. And they have like four different bins. And it's not like, should I do this? They just do it. It's just what we do. It's just like, I got to brush my teeth. I've got to do this. And it really, it, it's sort of two words, if you don't mind. It, it's inaction and it's the interconnectedness or the interdependence of nature. You know, and I'm sorry if I go back to our simple byline to get it out there, but it's like healthy whales, healthy oceans, healthy humans. You know, it's just that simple. You want to live a healthy life? You got to be involved. Absolutely. Okay. I don't know if I, did it, I answer that it, question? I don't know. Yeah, you know. it really is. You know, if we could be brought to a level of awareness where we each just do what we can do 
it adds up. It makes a yeah. difference. It's made yeah. a difference in every big major social change throughout human history exactly. was when people, that's why we call this podcast, the conspiracy of goodness Yeah, is because every major change in human history. I mean, we don't have the gladiators anymore because one person at a time turned their backs on that practice yeah. Yeah, that's right. and, and they just acted differently. They stopped going. They, yeah. you know, it just didn't make well, sense. Well, and I, I said that earlier with a lot of these chemicals and products and stuff. You know, these people weren't malicious. They didn't know. You know, yeah. they didn't know. Well, I, right. I want to throw I want to throw at you and your listeners challenge that my organization is facing. Mm-hmm. And it and it frustrates me sort of royally, as it were. Okay. Because I don't think we are winning the fight to save the wild world with the gear we've got, with the tools we've got. I'm not saying we get rid of those tools, but we're not winning. And I I think what we need is we need more, almost what we call moonshot thinking. We need people thinking out the box and we need people taking risks. And I'm not playing a violin, but I'm just explaining. When I reach out to all of these foundations and say, I want to innovate, I want to think, I want to take a big risk, 99% of the time they're like, Ian, the problems are so well-defined, we don't want to risk any money. Do you know what I mean? We're going to, we're going to just stick to doing this. And it's so funny because when you look at the stock market, people are throwing money at crazy ideas all the time in the hope that they will win the lottery. Well, trust me, you'll win the lottery here, which is, you know, your grandchildren will respect you. Do you know what I mean? So it's back to changing mindsets. We are... And if you look at Ocean Alliance, we've done very well with Snopbot. Like 28 groups around the world are using our, our protocols. We've got nine or 10 groups around the world now are talking about how can we use drones for tagging and photogrammetry. I mean, we've got a really good track record, and I hope we'll come back one day. But we have two or three other ideas that I'm now trying to fund. And I will tell you, Ocean X has stepped up a little bit, which is fantastic. But it's, do you know what I mean? We need to take risks with reference to saving the wild world. Well, and, you know, and that it. leads yeah. me it leads me to to being open for room for serendipity in science and research and the things we launch into because yeah. a lot of the times you well, almost every time, right? You've always been able to turn a failure into some insight that made whatever you wherever direction you were going a little yeah. bit better, a little bit we, easier. Yeah. Now you can't succeed without failure. Absolutely. Yes. You know? Yeah. So, so we, no, we, I, yeah. I mean, we no, apply this in our own lives that, if we. Well, that's right. Well, that's right. Yeah. And but I mean, the funny thing is, I think you take risks when you're long, when you're younger, not when you're older. Do you know what I mean? But it, it, you know, sort of like I dare you to save the wild world. Here we go. Here's a challenge. I dare you. You know. Challenge. But I, no. I like to share with my kids, so I'll share this with folks. I've, I'm a very big risk taker. I mean, I started this big goodness exchange <laughs> extravaganza when I still had an eighth grader and I was 53 years old. And oh, wow. I and, you know, I was a dentist who said, you know what? I got to change the world. <laughs> Somebody's got to do something about all this negative news. <laughs> like, who yeah, does that. But yeah. Uh, what I always what I always tell myself and my kids is that. If you can live with the worst case scenario, then like take, you know, really think about what the worst case scenario looks like. And if you can live with that, risk it, take a leap because you you have no idea. And in in science, often the worst case scenario is, is learning something. (laughs) Well, that's right. That's right. 
And I think also in science a little bit, science is not always the best collaboration format, but at Ocean Alliance, we try to change that. And I'm sorry I'm going to do this to you, but I, but I, again, I say to people, well, Ocean Alliance, we're not ocean alone. You know, we want to work with people. We want to come up with ideas. But also, I just, I back to what I said about, about sort of taking risks. This is an exciting time. You know, I, the fact that we, we are challenged to get people to support risk taking, again, that's another opportunity. Do you know what I mean? But we're, we're getting it done. But I just, you know, I, I do worry about all that we have to do. and How fast we have to do it, too. And how, how fast. But you know what? It's funny. I'm, thank you for bringing that up. Because you know what's crazy? And I don't like this, but we are a great 11th hour species. You know, when the Berlin Wall fell, it fell so bloody fast, people couldn't keep up with it. You know, when the Soviet Union sort of fell apart as what it was, you couldn't keep up with it. You know, so it's like when we make up our mind, my concern is, as we know, with a lot of environmental issues, we probably can't leave it to the 11th hour. And this is a problem even with whales and many other species. And to sort of climate deniers, the reality is, as you know, it's the rate of change. Yeah, it's always gone up and down, but we're moving it at a rate that is extraordinary in not just in human history, but in planetary history. And the problem is many species cannot adapt that quickly. We can, but many wildlife species can't. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's helping, it's mm -hmm. giving the oceans that sort of balance. Mm -hmm. These interviews, as we wrap up, I want to share with folks that these interviews make a difference. We've had very many folks who've been on this podcast. I asked them this last question and they fill us in on what needs to happen next to make a leap. And they've had those things happen because folks shared their interview. One, my best example of it is I, we are interviewing amazing TED speaker, Principal Wayman. Boy, that's a powerful TED talk. It's, yeah, she, she turned around the most dangerous, fourth most dangerous high school in the country with love. It's a fabulous TED talk. Look up Principal Wayman. And anyway, I asked her at the end of the podcast interview. So what needs to happen to help you make a leap? And it was the heart of the pandemic and she's in North Philly. And she said, we don't have any place to meet anymore. We were meeting in, a, in an old grocery store and they kicked us My out. Gosh. So I've got 179 kids that have no one to teach them. They don't even have desks at home. And you know what? That, that People shared that podcast interview. It fell on the right ears and she got her entire program funded for a year and wow. the place to meet. Fantastic. So tell us, I mean, I, right. tell us what needs to happen next to blow open the possibilities for progress. Yeah. I mean, Is for me, at least. Funding? Yeah. Is it, is what? I think probably, I mean, remember, you know, I'm 65, I've been doing this for 34 years. I feel I've now got the perspective of the pure scientist, of the innovator, of the media person that's bringing those things together. And I'm very interested, as you know, in sort of democratizing ocean science. So just getting, because again, as I said, I've been around the world, met all these people. The people are out there that want to do the work. They've got the opportunity. They just need to be, they just need the tools. And that's what I want to do is get these people these tools. And right now, in many ways, it's drones. And again, I have no problem if I give someone a drone for whale research and they end up to use, a, they find an illegal gold mine. That's great. You know what I mean? The rising tide is lifting all boats. Okay. So, <laughs> so for us, yeah. So for us, I apologize. It is a little bit about money and actually, Linda, we're actually trying to build this sort of ocean innovation center here where the monies will be donated to, 
to build the building. So that will give innovators, you know, ocean innovators, an opportunity to explore and take risks without the typical high budget need. Do you know what I mean? Because typically you build these spaces and they're so expensive, you've got to pay a lot of money to get in. But that's level two. But, you know, it adds up. It all adds up. And also, you know, a small donation is something we can all do. You know, I can't go to save the rainforest personally, but I donate to an organization that actually pays farmers who farm the rainforest. Not and they and it helps them earn a livable wage that they don't have to either cut the rainforest down or sell it to a group that will cut it down and put cattle on it for five years and it's all gone. So money matters, and you know we can all do a little bit with that. And I can see your vision about the cost benefit ratio. It's just so obvious if we can get people all over the world access to this technology. Who knows what's possible? Yeah. Well, and I'm going to say another. Very self-serving comment, and I apologize. But as you know, our website is whale.org. Yes. This Black Friday and this Christmas, don't buy some junk that somebody isn't actually going to want or they're going to re-gift or it's going to be pollution or whatever. You know what? Buy them a whale adoption. Adopt a whale with the story. They can then track the whale. You know, there's an interesting, fun story. And actually, 90% of the times, we just do an electronic gift with it all there. And it's like, you know what? You're helping the wild world. You're telling a good story. And I tell you, I've yet to meet someone who hasn't appreciated somebody adopting a whale for them with the whole story and the bio. And you know what? Why not? And if it's not a whale, I mean, maybe it's a tree, I don't know, or, or whatever. But do you know what I mean? That type of stuff where get somebody a great gift, but don't be part of the problem. This is something, the ad that ran with this interview was about our the gift guide at the Goodness Exchange. We're shining a light on 20 companies that are making the good world a better oh, place cool. and Love doing it. good business. Yeah. For exactly that reason, Ian, like, I, I don't know about you, but most people I know don't like stuff anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't well, we have stuff. I like stuff, but not a lot of it. I like, yes. you know, good stuff that will last yes. and can be reused and exactly. Yes. You know? Yes. But they just don't want any old gift. And I'm always proud of the gifts I give when I'm, when it's thoughtful and it's connected to something that's making the world a better place. Right. Yeah. I hate to say it. I, I don't want to lower the tone here, but what's his name? Gallagher. Didn't he just die? Did you hear that? No. Gallagher did a, a wonderful, do you know the comedian? He did a wonderful thing. He used to smash water rails, but he did a great piece about stuff, how you get stuff and you get a little apartment, then you need a bigger house to put your stuff in. And then the house is empty. So you need to fill any whatever. But yeah. 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 Oh, George Carlin has a that, amazing that, video. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. About maybe stuff. you know, maybe yes. I got it wrong. Maybe maybe it's George Carlin that died. That's I can't George remember. Carlin. Yeah, I think it is. All right. Well this is well, thank you, delightful. Linda. It's whale.org. Org. O R G. Whale, not whales with an no, S. Whale. Whale. whale.org. That's right. And, you know, that's how we're going to fix this solution is one whale at a time and one one study at a time and one good person with a drone in that's their right. hands at a time. And one one innovation at a time. Right. One blue innovation. Right. And one share at a time. So thank you, folks, that's for right. sharing this around. And I a real pleasure. Article, well, we're going to fill the article about this podcast episode at the Goodness Exchange. It'll publish on a Wednesday. We're going to fill it with links that to even yeah, more yeah. wonder. I'll, I'll send you two or three links as, as okay. soon as we're done here. As soon as I get myself a cup of coffee. Great. All right. So for more information about, about Ian's work, take a look at the show notes. And remember to, to join us at the Goodness Exchange, where people with good intention are, and great ideas are coming together. I'm 
speaking these days a lot about how after 10 years at this, we're seeing all this goodness and progress, like little tiny points of light in a lot of darkness. But really, we've got to come together. We've got to form like a constellation. People can look up at and see the Big Dipper and know that change is happening. So join Ian's work or any of the people that you see on the Goodness Exchange. They're very, very carefully scrutinized for making the world a better place. And I hope... Apart from this one. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I, I'm so excited about the Snotbot. <laughs> I will dive all good. There. good. Well, well, There's yeah. an article about the Snotbot, too, at the Goodness then, Exchange. Then for those that are just tuning in, I should tell you, it's not what you think. Oh. Sorry, couldn't help myself. It's good. We got to end on yeah. a high note. I got to end on a high I, note. Well, I hope that uh, all the goodness and progress that Ian and I have talked to will carry you through your week and you find the joy and wonder that we've been talking about. Thanks. Thank you. Cheers, Linda. Ian, but I think something really important that would be missing in this conversation is how this all started. Because your story relates back to something that I've been telling people as long as I had an ear through my dental practice. You know, I got to talk to 30 people a day and I'd hear that they were not getting enough meaning and purpose out of their jobs or they were quitting and didn't know what to go to. And I always include and encourage people to volunteer, to just start somewhere and test their passions in a volunteering way. And I understand that volunteering is kind of at the heart of the beginning of your story. No, that's right. 100%. And you know, what's interesting is I've never really felt that I fit in. I think a lot of people do this, and I, I don't quite fit in. And I actually got a degree in education at the University of London that I enjoyed, but I'm like, I'm not ready for sort of dead poet society. I'm, I'm not ready yet. So I would, and I tried different jobs. You know, I, I tried a lot of different jobs. And by chance, I met this fellow. I was hitchhiking around Argentina and met this fellow, Roger Payne, on a beach in Argentina. And at that time, you know, I had a boat license, captain's license, and a degree. And And they were looking for somebody to volunteer to sort of take a boat to the Galapagos. No pay. And I'm like, hey, I get to go to the Galapagos for free. I mean, why not? But then it was funny. After that particular trip, you know, I asked Roger if I could come work for him. And he said, well, yeah, but I I don't have any money. So he didn't pay me. And I I sort of lived in my office. So I had a blanket in the middle of the room and a mattress on the other side. And remember my parents coming over from England, you know, University of London, Pass with honors and all, and they're like, and you're sleeping on the floor and not getting paid. But I was, you know, helping the wild world, but I was helping myself. You know, what am I good at? And I think, and I, I got to be careful here, but I think people sort of look down on the fact if you're not a specialist, you know what I mean? I'm sure even with the Ori industry, you've got people that, let's say, do root canals and people that just do cosmetic and people that do general dentistry. But I think that. We need more generalists, somebody, if I dare say, who can talk about the science, who can do the science, who can fly a drone, who can change a light bulb, who can fix a flat. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's my story. But I bet there are other people like musicians that can hear a chord, that can tune a guitar, that can support somebody else. And what's fascinating to me, at least, about saving the wild world is we need everybody. We don't just need scientists. You know, we need educators. We need volunteers. We need, I mean, by the way, the, you know, whale teeth, let's not even get going on that one, you know, because we can learn so much about whales. So it really is 
to your point, if you want to understand, you know, volunteer for this group, volunteer for that group, as, as you know, we've discussed, and it's happened at my company, I've had volunteers that I've then hired. Because I'm like, I know that person, they volunteered, they've showed me their value, they've showed me their interest. So I think dip your toe in the pool, then dip your foot in the pool, and then jump in, you know, and maybe you'll learn something about yourself. This is at the heart of it, right? You learn something about yourself, other people learn about you and what you care about. And when that person retires or somebody leaves for some reason, no one wants to go out in the world and hire an unknown. If you've been pitching and sleeping on your floor or whatever, I mean, even if you're living comfortably and you're volunteering at a museum or something that you love, a wildlife refuge or what have you, but you've been the one there in the mix, this is how it all starts so often, right? That's right. And there really is, again, within sort of environmental communities, I would be challenged to find somebody who said to me, this is my skill, it doesn't apply. I'm sure it might not be doing exactly that, but that skill set may enable you to do this. Do you know what I mean? So whatever your skill set is, I'm sure that we can apply it to the benefit of the wild world. And that is a key point, too. Let's not rush away from this point of being an expert generalist. <laughs> That's right. Well, okay. I mean, yeah, after 65 years, I might not be as much of a generalist as I was, but even so, it's still important, I think. Yeah, and that's another thing about how new ideas get flushed up is that somebody comes in that's completely sideways or, you know, to all practical purposes, unconnected to the discipline. So they look at it entirely different and they look at the possibilities entirely different. Linda, that was me. Trust me, that was me. I've taken on jobs that I'm like, oh, I'm going to let's do that. And we only did it because I had no bloody idea how hard it would be. And I've done a couple of those jobs. And then someone came to me and said, no one ever did that before. And I was like, what? And I, you know, I was presuming I was just, you know, so, but you've, you've got it, that mindset of, or, or even a different mindset, thinking outside of the box is crucial. And again, you've heard me say this, I really don't believe we're going to save the wild world now through traditional methods alone. Do you know what I mean? We need new tools, new ideas, new thinking, you know, and that's going to happen. And it's going to happen from these people that are that are start by saying, well, I don't think I'm qualified. I'm like, well, just by saying that, you're clearly qualified. You know, I have to add that probably by the time this, this may or may not be up by the time this interview comes up. But the other day I interviewed Nate Robinson. He's the fellow who's famous on YouTube for having pulled this, the drinking straw out of the sea turtle's nose right, in right. 2015. You know, he and his colleague. He, he always gives credit to his colleague. His colleague was the one that said, wait, let's get a cell phone out and take a picture of this. And, you know, it started a worldwide revolution yeah, against exactly. single-use plastics. Well, I mean, Arguably, yeah. that's all they did was put it out yeah. into the world. After that, it had its own momentum. Well, even my, my silly little drone snotbot, you know, I, we, we use that name to try to engage people and get people. And now I, I can't believe it. it's almost got worldwide market penetration. I mean, you know, which is fantastic. And I never knew that at the time. I didn't have a focus group saying snotbot, you know, exhale breath condensate. We, we were just, you know, yeah. So and the little things are game changing. I mean, literally that that name in many ways has changed, you know, my organization. Mm -hmm. And, and I, Crazy. you know, I brought up Nate's uh, situation because 
I hadn't interviewed him in about a year and a half. And now he's all into bioluminescence at the bottom of the ocean. Because what he's actually cool. famous for in circles, in your circles, is that he's one of only two people to have uh, videoed the um, giant squid at depth. All right. So one thing, little by little, he's also, you can tell when you talk to him, an expert generalist, you know, now he's all into bioluminescence because A, he's, he was curious. And B, it was, you know, he didn't know what he didn't know. Right. <laughs> he he laughs about that same thing. It's way more complicated than he ever dreamed, but but well, he's he he's not convers- yeah, he and I should have a conversation at some point in time because obviously sperm whales, I spent more time with that. And sperm <laughs> whales and Architeuthis and giant squid and and how they eat. It's a whole we could have another chat just on the I'm introducing you next week. For okay, sure. Right. I'm introducing you next week. Okay, step. So, you know, A, people can learn from your story. You know, where does Roger factor in this? Was what, um, because he, he, as we spoke about earlier in the podcast, Roger was the fellow who discovered, I don't know, it made the yeah. world aware through Nat Geo, Nat, right. Nat, National Geographic, that whales were singing. Where does he factor in? Were there moves that he made to bring somebody on like you, or was he doing it first and then you came along, or where, where does that factor in? Well, you know, first of all, I think Roger, uh, Roger and his wife and Scott McVeigh, they're all out there. And one of the gentlemen whose name will come back to me. But yeah, we're all there. And they discovered the whale sing songs. I, I do think, and it's a great question, because Roger went into media early. I think Roger was one of the few scientists that really saw, I'm not going to change the world by writing papers. You still have to do that for your scientific credibility. But potentially, I can change the world by capturing hearts and minds. And no doubt about it, when Roger and Katie and Scott McVeigh discovered the whales sing songs, they captured hearts and minds. And I do remember some people in the early days sort of criticizing Roger for saying he left the science behind, to which Roger replied, no, I didn't. I took the science with me to help tell the story. And the reality is, and it was funny, I was talking with someone from Ocean X the other day, and we're, we're trying to put camera tags on whales. And, and he was saying he thinks one of the most powerful pieces of research equipment you can put on wildlife is a camera. You know what I mean? Because it's all about behavior. And not only do you get great data, but you engage people because they're like, wow, look at that. I had no idea they did that. Almost again, when, when people said, oh, my gosh, whales aren't cat food, they're actually singer poets, you know, it's a monumental change. And the stereotype is still there. A lot of scientists just aren't good at at telling the story. And we've got to change that. You know, science needs it and the wild world needs it. Absolutely. You know, and that that's another little um, thing I want to be sure people look at the actual article for this podcast. If you're listening to it on your favorite podcast app, fine, but go to the Goodness Exchange and put this podcast episode in the search box because we are going to fill it full of these videos. I'm telling you, Ian sent me, <laughs> put Ian Kerr in the search box, K-E-R-R. And, uh, or it's not bot. It, they're yeah. both gonna, you're going to go to the Goodness Exchange and find it easily. And I tell you, Ian sent me an email the other day full of so many videos that gave me goosebumps. I, I had to rest a little bit afterwards. It's amazing. I tell you, that video, the video that you have now about that, um, where the drone goes and puts a, a little camera on the back of the whale, yeah. that is breathtaking. Yeah. And it is. And you know what? The, there was a camera there, but there was also time, depth, acoustics, orientation, acceleration. So we're really 
you know, journeying into the abyss with these animals. But I love the, you know, the camera too is as much as I, I mean, I guess what, what's the old saying? A, a picture says a thousand words. Is you can try to explain it to somebody and then you say, look at this. And they're like, wow. And how lucky are we to be on the back of a whale diving into the abyss? And we're going to be getting more of that. So yeah, we'll have to We'll share more content as it comes up. Okay. Okay. Well, this won't be our, our, our first and last interview. We are going to keep up with what you're doing for sure, Ian, because I think it points to hope. It points to, you know, ideas matter. It points to the fact that, you know, if you can think it and dream it, you can probably find somebody to go on that journey with you and create it. And that's what I want to talk about before we wind down. You've got a lot of really cool ideas about what's possible when it comes to expanding what you're doing in new ways. First, tell us about the old building you're in and the story of what you've done there and then your vision for the future. Yeah, we we were looking for a new headquarters and we heard about this polluted building on the waterfront in a city called Gloucester, Massachusetts. And it was an old paint factory. It's where they made anti-fouling paint. And another story, but I actually think anti-fouling paint that went on the bottom of the boats was the sort of lubrication that that fueled America's first industrial revolution, which was commercial fisheries. So that's another story. But we had this this old paint factory here, and the Annenberg Foundation generously gave us a grant to buy the site. And we've been slowly fixing it up, and these are our offices, and we've got docks where our research vessel is. But with most for-profits, you know, if you buy the building and build the docks and whatever – if you then want to collaborate and share and innovate, you've got to pay the mortgage. With us, we own these buildings, no mortgage. So I'm trying to create this sort of ocean innovation center here, okay, where basically someone can pull up, maybe it's a fisherman, pull up to our dock and say, I've got this. Can you scan it? Can we print it? Can we make a prototype? And I can charge them a little bit of money, but since everything has been donated, we can do it cheaper. And believe it or not, they have these maker spaces. These tend to be where people are making wooden bowls, but they have these cafes and they say where the people are sitting down and talking, where you've got, you know, ceramic and an artist and a this. So in my case, it would be a fisherman and a computer programmer and an AI person and a drone pilot sitting down. Who knows what that Scottish stew will sort of bring together? And what's fun, if you don't mind, Bearing in mind that that climate change is is such a big issue and we're on the waterfront, the one big building we had to take down, I want to put back up. And there's nothing worse than a person loves his own ideas, but we are going to put the building back on a barge. So it is going to be the world's first climate change, future-proof, floating innovation center. It's only about $6.5 million, Linda. So if you can just check your pockets, Check your wallet. Wait a minute. Do we got here? Oh my God. Yeah, wait. Uh, nothing's coming out. Anyway, there you go. You know, but you know what's funny? You say six million dollars nowadays when you look around at what what people are doing, and the the problem with this type of idea is there just aren't enough of them. You know, a lot of people that will have a space like this will say, "Well, I need to buy myself a nicer car or a bigger boat." Where in our particular case, because of the generosity of people like you and all of our supporters, we have an opportunity to be, and I'm sorry I have to do this to you, we are Ocean Alliance, not Ocean Alone. So let's work with people 
and, you know, leave a blue legacy rather than a legacy of, you know, of degradation. 